The entire watch was mustering. Vimes looked down at the sea of faces. My gods, he thought. How many have we got now? A few years ago you could count the watch on the finger of a blind butcher's hand, and now there's more coming in. He leaned sideways to Captain Carrot. Who are all these people? Watchmen, sir. You appointed them. Did I? I haven't even met some of them. You signed the paperwork, sir, and you signed the wage bill every month. Eventually. There was a hint of criticism in his voice. Vimes's approach to paperwork was not to touch it until someone was shouting, and then at least there would be someone to help him sort through the stacks. But how did they join? Usual way, sir. Swore them in, gave them each a helmet. Hey, that's Red Shoe. He's a zombie. He falls to bits all the time. Very big man in the undead community, sir, said Carrot. How come he joined? He came round last week to complain about the watch harassing some bogeyman, sir. He was very, er, uh, vehement, sir, so I persuaded him that what the watch needed was some expertise, and so he joined up, sir. No more complaints? Er, uh, twice as many, sir, all from the undead, sir, and all against Mr Shoe. Funny, that. Vimes gave his captain a sideways look. He's very hurt about it. He says he's found that the undead just don't understand the difficulties of policing in a multi-vital society, sir. Good gods, thought Vimes. That's just what I would have done. But I'd have done it because I'm not a nice person. Carrot is a nice person. He's practically got medals for it. Surely he wouldn't have... And he knew that he would never know. Somewhere behind Carrot's innocent stare was a steel door. You enrolled him, did you? No, sir, you did. You signed his joining orders and his kit chitty and his posting orders, sir. Vimes had another vision of too many documents hurriedly signed. But he must have signed them, and they needed the men, true enough. It was just that it ought to be him who... And anyone of sergeant rank or above can recruit, sir, said Carrot, as if reading his mind. It's in the general orders, page 22, sir, just below the tea stain. And you've recruited how many? Oh, just one or two. We're still very short-handed, sir. We are with Reg. His arms keep falling off. Aren't you going to talk to the men, sir? Vimes looked at the assembled, well, multitude. There was no other word. Well, there were plenty, but none that it would be fair to use. Big ones, short ones, fat ones, troll ones with the lichen still on, bearded dwarf ones, the looming pottery presence of the golem constable Dorful, undead ones and even now he wasn't certain if that term should include Corporal Angua, an intelligent girl and a very useful wolf when she had to be. Waifs and strays, Colon had said once. Waifs and bloody strays, because normal people wouldn't be coppers. Technically, they were all in uniform too, except that mostly they weren't wearing the same uniform as anyone else. Everyone had just been sent down to the armoury to collect whatever fitted, and the result was a walking historical exhibit. Funny-shaped helmets through the ages. Er, uh, ladies and gentlemen, he began. Be quiet, please, and listen to Commander Vimes, bellowed Carrot. Vimes found himself meeting the gaze of Angua, who was leaning against the wall. She rolled her eyes helplessly. Yes, yes, thank you, Captain, said Vimes. He turned back to the massed array of Ark Morpork's finest. He opened his mouth. He stared. And then he shut his mouth, all but a corner of it. And he said out of that corner... What's that little lump on Constable Flint's head? That's probationary Constable Buggy Swire, sir. He likes to get a good view. He's a gnome. Well done, sir. 
Another one of yours? Ours, sir, said Carrot, using his reproachful voice again. Yes, sir, attached to the Chittling Street station since last week, sir. Oh, my gods, murmured Vimes. Buggy Swires saw his stare and saluted. He was five inches tall. Vimes regathered his mental balance. The long and the short and the tall waifs and strays, all of us. I'm not going to keep you long, he said. You all know me. Well, most of you know me, he added with a sidelong glance at Carrot. And I don't make speeches, but I'm sure all of you have noticed the way this leshp business has got people all stirred up. There's a lot of loose talk about war. Well, war isn't our business. War is soldiers' business. Our business, I think, is to keep the peace. Let me show you this. He stood back and pulled something out of his pocket with a flourish. At least, that was the intention. There was a rip as something ceased to be entangled in the lining. Damn. Er... Uh, he produced a length of shiny black wood from the ragged pocket. There was a large silver knob on the end. The watchman craned to look. This, er, uh, this, Vimes groped. This old man turned up from the palace a couple of weeks ago, gave me this damn thing. Got a label saying, Regalia of the Watch Commander, City of Ark Morpork. You know, they never throw anything away up at the palace. He waved it vaguely. The wood was surprisingly heavy. It's got the coat of arms on the knob. Look. Thirty watchmen tried to see. And I thought, I thought, good grief, this is what I'm supposed to carry. And I thought about it, and then I thought, no, that's right, just once someone got it right. It's not even a weapon, it's just a thing. It ain't for using, it's just for having. That's what it's all about. Same thing with uniforms. You see, a soldier's uniform is to turn him into part of a crowd of other parts, all in the same uniform. But a copper's uniform is there to... Vimes stopped. Perplexed expressions in front of him told him that he was building a house of cards with too few cards on the bottom. He coughed. Anyway, he went on, with a glare to indicate that everyone should forget the previous twenty seconds. Our job is to stop people fighting. There's a lot happening on the street. You've probably heard that they're starting up the regiments again. Well, people can recruit if they like, but we're not going to have any mobs. There's a nasty mood around. I don't know what's going to happen, but we've got to be there when it does. He looked around the room. Another thing, this new Clatchian envoy, or whatever he's called, is arriving tomorrow. I don't think the Assassin's Guild has anything planned, but tonight we're going to check the route the wizard's procession will be taking. A nice little job for the night shift. And tonight, we're all on the night shift. There was a groan from the watch. As my old sergeant used to say, if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have joined, said Vimes. A nice gentle door-to-door -door inspection, shaking hands with doorknobs, giving the uniform a bit of an airing. Good old-fashioned policing. Any questions? Good. Thank you very much. There was a general rustling and relaxing among the squad as it dawned on them that they were free to go. Carrot started to clap. It wasn't the clap used by middlings to encourage underlings to applaud overlings. The palms are held at right angles to one another and flapped together rather than clapped, while the flapper stares intently at the audience as if to say, we're going to have some applause here or else the whole school is in detention. It had genuine enthusiasm behind it, which was somehow worse. A couple of the more impressionable new constables picked it up and then, in the same way that little pebbles lead the avalanche, the sound of humanoids banging their hands together filled the room. Vimes glowered. "'Very inspiring, sir,' said Carrot, as the clapping rose to a storm. 
rain poured on Ankh-Morpork. It filled the gutters and overflowed, and was then flung away by the wind. It tasted of salt. The gargoyles had crept out of their daytime shadows, and were perched on every cornice and tower, ears and wings outstretched, to sieve anything edible out of the water. It was amazing what could fall on Ankh-Morpork. Rains of small fish and frogs were common enough, although bedsteads caused comment. A broken gutter poured a sheet of water down the window of Ossie Brunt, who was sitting on his bed because there were no chairs, or indeed any other furniture. He didn't mind at the moment. In a minute or two he might be very angry, and then again possibly not. It was not that Ossie was insane in any way. Friends would have called him a quiet sort who kept himself to himself, but they didn't because he didn't have any friends. There was a group of men who went to practice at the archery butts on Tuesday nights, and he sometimes went to a pub with them afterwards and sat and listened to them talk, and he'd saved up once and bought a round of drinks, although they probably wouldn't remember, or maybe they'd say, oh, oh yeah, Ossie. People said that. People tended to put him out of their minds in the same way that you didn't pay much attention to empty space. He wasn't stupid. He thought a lot about things. Sometimes he'd sit and think for hours just staring at the opposite wall where the rain came in on damp nights and made a map of clatch. Someone hammered on the door. Mr Brunt, are you decent? I'm a bit busy, Mrs Spence, he said, putting his bow under the bed with his magazines. It's about the rent. Yes, Mrs Spence, you know my rules. I shall pay you tomorrow, Mrs Spence said Ossie, looking towards the window. Cash in my hand by noon, or it's out you go. Yes, Mrs. Spent. He heard her stamp downstairs again. He counted to fifty very carefully, and then reached down and pulled out his bow again. Angua was on patrol with Nobby Nobs. This was not an ideal arrangement, but Carrot was on swing patrol, and on a night like this, Fred Colon, who kept the roster, had an uncanny knack of being on desk duty in the warm. So the spare partners had been thrown together. It was a terrible thought. "'Can I have a word, miss?' said Nobby, as they rattled doorknobs and waved their lanterns into alleyways. "'Yes, Nobby?' "'It's personal.' "'Oh!' Only I'd ask Fred, but he wouldn't understand, and I think you would understand on account of you being a woman. Most of the time, anyway, no offence meant. What do you want, Nobby? It's about my sexual nature, miss. Angua said nothing. Rain banged off Nobby's ill-fitting helmet. I think it's time I looked it full in the face, miss. Angua cursed her graphic imagination again. And, um, how were you thinking of doing that, Nobby? I mean, I sent off for stuff, miss. Creams and that. Creams, said Angua flatly. That you rub on, said Nobby helpfully. Rub on. And a thing you do exercises with. Oh, gods. Sorry, miss. What? Oh, I was just thinking of something else. Do go on. Um, exercises. Yeah, to build up my biceps and that. Oh, exercises, really. Nobby did not appear to have any biceps to speak of. There wasn't really anything for them to be on. Technically, he had arms because his hands were attached to his shoulders, but that was about all you could say. Horrified interest got the better of her. Why, Nobby? He looks down sheepishly. Well, I mean, 
you know, girls and that. To her amazement, Nobby was blushing. You mean you, she began, you want to, you're looking for a, oh, I'm not just after, I mean, if you want a thing done properly, then, no, well, I mean, no, said Nobby reproachfully. What I'm saying is, as you get older, you know, you think about settling down, finding someone who'll go with you hand in hand down life's bumpy highway. Why's your mouth open? Angua shut it abruptly. But I just don't seem to meet girls, Nobby said. Well, I mean, I meet girls, and, and then they rush off. Despite the cream? Right. And the exercises? Yes. Well, you've covered all the angles, I can see that, said Angua. Beats me where you're going wrong, she sighed. What about stamina thrum in Elm Street? Uh, she's got a wooden leg. Well, then, Verity Pushpram, nice girl. She runs the clam and cocklebarrow in Rhyme Street. Hammerhead? <laughs> Stinks of fish all the time, and she's got a squint. She's got her own business, though. Does wonderful chowder, too. And a squint. Not exactly a squint, Nobby. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Angua had to admit that she did. Verity had the opposite of a squint. Both eyes appeared to be endeavouring to see the adjacent ear. When you talked to her, you had to suppress a feeling that she was about to walk off in two directions. But she could gut fish like a champion. She sighed again. She was familiar with the syndrome. They said they wanted a soulmate and helpmeet, but sooner or later the list would include a skin-like silk and a chest fit for a herd of cows. Except for Carrot. That was almost, almost one of the annoying things about him. She suspected he wouldn't mind if she shaved her head or grew a beard. It wasn't that he wouldn't notice. He just wouldn't mind, and for some reason that was very aggravating. The only thing I can suggest, she said, is that women are quite often attracted to men who can make them laugh. Nobby brightened. Really? he said. I ought to be well in there, then. Good. People laugh at me all the time. High above, quite oblivious of the rain that had already soaked him to the skin, Ossie Brunt checked the oilskin cover round his bow and settled down for the long wait. Rain was a copper's friend. Tonight, people were making do with indoor crime. Vimes stood in the lee of one of the fountains in Sartor Square. The fountain hadn't worked for years, but he was getting just as wet as if it were in full flow. He'd never experienced truly horizontal rain before. There was no one around, the rain marched across the square like... like an army. Now there was an image from his youth. Funny how they hung around in the dark alleys of your brain and suddenly jumped out on you. Rain falling on water. Ah, yes. When he was a little lad, he'd pretended that the raindrops splashing in the running gutters were soldiers, millions of soldiers. And the bubbles that sometimes went floating by were men on horseback. Right now he couldn't remember what the occasional dead dog had been. Some kind of siege weapon, possibly. Water swirled around his boots and dripped off his cape. When he tried to light a cigar, the wind blew the match out and the rain poured off his helmet and soaked the cigar in any case. He grinned in the night. He was, temporarily, a happy man. He was cold, wet and alone, trying to keep out of the worst of the weather at three o'clock on a ferocious morning. He'd spent some of the best nights of his life like this. At such times you could just... Sort of punch your shoulders like this, 
and let your head pull in like this, and you became a little hutch of warmth and peace, the rain banging on your helmet, the mind just ticking over, sorting out the world. It was like this in the old days when no one cared about the watch, and all you really had to do was keep out of trouble. Those were the days when there wasn't as much to do. But there was as much to do, said an inner voice. You just didn't do it. He could feel the official truncheon hanging heavily in the special pocket that Sybil herself had sewn in his breeches. Why is it just a bit of wood? he'd asked himself when he'd unwrapped it. Why not a sword? That's the symbol of power. And then he'd realised why it couldn't ever be a sword. Ho there, good citizen. May I ask your business this brisk morning? He sighed. There was a lantern appearing through the murk, surrounded by a halo of water. Ho there, good citizen. There was only one person in the city who would say something like that and mean it. It's me, Captain. The halo drew nearer and illuminated the damp face of Captain Carrot. The young man ripped off a salute, at God's damn three in the morning, Vimes thought, that would have brought a happy tear to the eye of the most psychotic drill sergeant. What are you doing out, sir? I just wanted to check up on things, said Vimes. You could have left it all to me, sir, said Carrot. Delegation is the key to successful command. Really, is it, said Vimes sourly. My word, we live and learn, don't we? And you certainly learn, he added in the privacy of his head, and he was almost sure he was being mean and stupid. We've just about finished, sir. We've checked all the empty buildings, and there will be an extra squad of constables on the route, and the gargoyles will be up as high as they can. You know how good they are at watching, sir. Gargoyles? I thought we just had Constable Downspout. And Constable Pediment now, sir. One of yours? One of ours, sir. You signed... Yes, yes, I'm sure I did. Damn. A gust of wind caught the water pouring from an overloaded gutter and dumped it down Vimes's neck. They say this new island's upset the airstreams, said Carrot. Not just the air, said Vimes. A lot of damn fuss over a few square miles of silt and some old ruins. Who cares? They say it's strategically very important, said Carrot, falling into step beside him. What for? We're not at war with anyone. <laughs> but we might go to war to keep some damn island that's only useful in case we have to go to war, right? Oh, his lordship will have it all sorted out today. I'm sure that when moderate-mannered men of goodwill can get round a table, there's no problem that can't be resolved, said Carrot cheerfully. He is, thought Vimes glumly. He really is sure. No much about Clatch, he said. I've read a little, sir. Very sandy place, they say. Yes, sir, apparently. There was a crash somewhere ahead of them and a scream. Coppers learned to be good at screams. There was to the connoisseur a world of difference between I'm drunk and I've just trodden on my fingers and I can't get up and look out, he's got a knife. Both men started to run. Light blazed out in a narrow street. Heavy footsteps vanished into the darkness. The light flickered beyond a shop's broken window. Vimes stumbled through the doorway, pulled off his sodden cape and threw it over the fire in the middle of the floor. There was a hiss and a smell of hot leather. Then Vimes stood back and tried to work out where the hell he was. People were staring at him. Dimly, his mind assembled clues. The turban, the beard, the woman's jewellery. Where did he come from? Who is this man? Um, good morning, he said. Looks like there's been a bit of an accident. He raised the cape gingerly. 
A broken bottle lay in a pool of sizzling oil. Vimes looked up at the broken window. Oh. The other two people were a boy almost as tall as his father and a small girl trying to hide behind her mother. Vimes felt his stomach turn to lead. Carrot arrived in the doorway. I lost them, he panted. There were three of them, I think. Can't see anything in this rain. Ho, oh, it's you, Mr. Goriff. What happened here? Captain Carrot, someone threw a burning bottle through our window, and then this beggar man rushed in and put it out. What did he say? What did you say? said Vimes. You speak, Clatchian. Not very well, said Carrot modestly. I just can't get the back of the throat sound. But you can understand what he said. Oh, yes, he just thank you very much, by the way. It's all right, Mr. Corriff. He's a watchman. But you speak. Carrot knelt down and looked at the broken bottle. Oh, you know how it is. You come in here on a night shift for a hot caraway bun and you just get chatting. You must have picked up the odd word, sir. Well, Vindaloo, maybe, but this is a firebomb, sir. I know, Captain. This is very bad. Who would do a thing like this? Right now, said Vimes, half the city, I should think. He looked helplessly at Goriff. He vaguely recognised the face. He vaguely recognised Mrs Goriff's face. They were faces. They were usually at the other end of some arms, holding a portion of curry or a kebab. Sometimes the boy ran the place. The shop opened very early in the morning and very late at night, when the streets were owned by bakers, thieves and watchmen. Vimes knew the place as mundane meals. Nobby Nobbs had said that Goriff had wanted a word that meant ordinary, everyday, straightforward, and had asked around until he found one he liked the sound of. Uh, tell him, tell him you're staying here, and I'll go back to the watchhouse and send someone out to relieve you, said Vimes. Thank you, said Goriff. Oh, you understand? Vimes felt like an idiot. Of course you do. You must have been here, what, five, six years? Ten years, sir. Really? said Vimes manically. That long, really? My word, well, I'd better get along. Good morning to you. He hurried out into the rain. I must have been going in there for years, he thought, as he splashed through the darkness, and I know how to say Vindaloo and Korma. Carrot's hardly been here five minutes, and he gargles the language like a native. Good grief. I can get by in dwarfish, and I can at least say put down that rock you're under arrest in troll, but... He stamped into the watchhouse, water pooling off him. Fred Colon was dozing quietly at the desk. In deference to the fact that he'd known Fred all these years, Vimes was extra noisy about taking off his cape. When he officially turned round, the sergeant was sitting at attention. "'I didn't know you were on tonight, Mr Vimes.' "'This is unofficial, Fred,' said Vimes. He accepted Mr. from certain people. In an odd way, they'd earned it. "'Send someone along to mundane meals in Scandal Alley, will you? Bit of trouble there.' He reached the stairs. "'You stopping, sir?' said Fred. "'Oh, yes.' said Vimes grimly. I've got to catch up on the paperwork. The rain fell on Leshp so hard it probably hadn't been worth the island's bother of rising from the bottom of the sea. Most of the explorers slept in their boats now. There were buildings on the risen island, but the buildings weren't quite right. Solid Jackson peered out from the tarpaulin he'd rigged up on deck. Mist was rising off the soaking ground and was made luminous by the occasional flash of lightning. The city, by stormlight, looked far too malevolent. There were things he could recognise, columns and steps and archways and so on, 
but there were others. He shuddered. It looked as if people had once tried to add human touches to structures that were already ancient. It was because of his son that everyone was staying in the boats. A party of Ankh-Morpork fishermen had gone ashore that morning to search for the heaps of treasure that everyone knew littered the ocean bottom and had found a tiled floor washed clean by the rain. Pretty blue and white squares showed a pattern of waves and shells and in the middle a squid. And Les had said, That looks pretty big, Dad. And everyone had looked around at the weed-covered buildings and had shared the thought, which remained unspoken, but was made up of a lot of little thoughts, like the occasional ripples in the pools and the little splashes in the dark water of cellars that made the mind think of claws, winnowing the deeps, and the odd things that sometimes got washed up on the beaches or turned up in nets. Sometimes you pulled things over the side that had put a man off fish for life. And suddenly, no one wanted to explore any more, just in case they found something. Solid Jackson pulled his head back under the cover. Why ain't we going home, Dad? said his son. You said this place gives you the willies. All right, but there aren't more pork willies, see? And no foreigner's going to get his hands on them. Dad? Yes, lad. Who was Mr. Hong? How should I know? Only when we was all heading back for the boats, one of the other men said, We all know what happened to Mr. Hong when he opened the three jolly luck takeaway fish bar on the site of the old fish god temple in Dagon Street on the night of the full moon, don't we? Well, I don't know. Ah, Solid Jackson hesitated. Still, Les was a big lad now. He closed up and left in a bit of a hurry, lad. So quick he had to leave some things behind. Like what? If you must know, half an ear hole and one kidney. Cool! The boat rocked and wood splintered. Jackson jerked the cover up. Spray washed over him. Somewhere close in the wet darkness, a voice shouted, Why are you not carrying lights, you second cousin of a jackal? Jackson pulled out the lantern and held it up. What are you doing in Ankh-Morpork territorial waters, you camel-eating devil? These waters belong to us. We were here first. Yeah, we were here first. We were here first first. You damaged my boat. That's piracy, that is. There were other shouts around them. In the darkness, the two flotillas had collided. Bowsprits tore away rigging. Hulls boomed. The controlled panic that is normal sailing became the frantic panic composed of darkness, spray, and too much rigging coming unrigged. At times like this, the ancient traditions of the sea that unite all mariners should come to the fore and see them combine in the face of their common foe, the hungry and relentless ocean. However, at this point, Mr. Arif hit Mr. Jackson over the head with an oar. Hmm? What? Vimes opened the only eye that appeared to respond. A horrible sight met it. I read him his rights, whereupon he said, Up yours, copper. Sergeant Detritus then cautioned him, upon which he said, Ouch. There may be a lot of things I'm not good at, thought Vimes, but at least I don't treat the punctuation of a sentence like a game of pin the tail on the donkey. He rolled his head away from Carrot's fractured grammar. The pile of paper shifted under him. Vimes's desk was becoming famous. Once there were piles, but they had slipped as piles do, forming this dense, compacted layer that was now turning into something like peat. It was said there were plates and unfinished meals somewhere down there. 
No one wanted to check. Some people said they'd heard movement. There was a genteel cough. Vimes rolled his head again and looked up into the big, pink face of Willikins, Lady Sybil's butler. His butler, too, technically, although Vimes hated to think of him like that. I think we had better proceed with alacrity, Sir Samuel. I have brought your dress uniform, and your shaving things are by the basin. What? What? You are due at the university in half an hour. Lady Sybil has vouchsafed to me that if you are not there, she will utilise your intestines for hosiery accessories, sir. Was she smiling? said Vimes, staggering to his feet and making his way to the steaming basin on the washstand. Only slightly, sir. Oh, gods. Yes, sir. Vimes made an attempt at shaving while behind him Willikins brushed and polished. Outside, the city's clocks began to strike ten. It must have been almost four when I sat down, Vimes thought. I know I heard the shift change at eight, and then I had to sort out Nobby's expenses. That's advanced mathematics if ever there was some. He tried to yawn and shave at the same time, which is never a good idea. Damn! I shall fetch some tissue paper directly, sir, said Willikins, without looking round. As Vimes dabbed at his chin, the butler went on, I should like to take this opportunity to raise a matter of some import, sir. Yes. Vimes stared blearily at the red tights that seemed to be a major item of his dress uniform. Regretfully, I am afraid I must ask leave to give my notice, sir. I wish to join the colours. Which colours are these, Willikins? said Vimes, holding up a shirt with puffed sleeves. Then his brain caught up with his ears. You want to become a soldier? They say Clatch needs to be taught a sharp lesson, sir. A Willikins has never been found wanting when his country calls. I thought that Lord Venturi's heavy infantry would do for me. They have a particularly attractive uniform of red and white, sir, with gold fogging. Vimes pulled his boots on. You've had military experience, have you? Oh, no, sir, but I am a quick learner, sir, and I believe I have some prowess with the carving knife. The butler's face showed a patriotic alertness. On turkeys? And on, said Vimes. Yes, sir, said Willikins, buffing up the ceremonial helmet. And you're off to fight the screaming hordes in Clatch, are you? If it should come to that, sir, said Willikins, I think this is adequately polished now, sir. A very sandy place, so they say. Indeed, sir, said Willikins, adjusting the helmet under Vimes's chin. And rocky, very rocky, lots of rocks. Dusty, too. Very parched in parts, sir, I believe you are correct. And so into this land of sand-coloured dust and sand-coloured rocks and sand-coloured you, Willikins, will march with your expertise in cutlery and your red and white uniform. With the gold fogging, sir, Willikins thrust out his jaw. Yes, sir, if the need arises. You don't see anything wrong with this picture, sir? Oh, never mind, Vimes yawned. Well, we shall miss you, Willikins. Others may not, he thought, especially if they have time for a second shot. Oh, Lord Venturi says it'll all be over by Hogswatch, sir. Really? I didn't know it had started. Vimes ran down the stairs and into a smell of curry. We saved you some, sir, said Sergeant Colon. You was asleep when the lad brought it round. It was Goriff's kid, said Nobby, chasing a bit of rice around his tin plate. 
Enough for half the shift. The rewards of duty, said Vimes, hurrying towards the door. Bread and mangle, pickle and everything, said Colon happily. I've always said old Goriff isn't that bad for a raghead. A pool of sizzling oil. Vimes stopped at the door, the family huddling together. He took out his watch. It was twenty past ten. If he ran, Fred, could you just step up to my office, he said. It won't take a moment. Right, sir. Vimes ushered the sergeant up the stairs and closed the door. Nobby and the other watchman strained to listen, but there was no sound except for a low murmuring which went on for some time. The door opened again. Vimes came down the stairs. Nobby, come up to the university in five minutes, will you? I want to stay in touch and I'm damned if I'm taking a pigeon with this uniform on. Right, sir. Vimes left. A few moments later, Sergeant Colon walked carefully down to the main office. He had a slightly glassy look and walked back to his desk with the nonchalance that only the extremely worried try to achieve. He toyed with some paper for a while and then said, You don't mind what people call you, do you, Nobby? I'd be minding the whole time if I minded that, Sarge, said Corporal Nobbs cheerfully. Right, right. And I don't mind what people call me neither, Colon scratched his head. Don't make sense, really. I reckon Sir Sam is missing too much sleep. He's a very busy man, Fred. Trying to do everything, that's his trouble. And Nobby, yes, it's Sergeant Colon, thanks. There was Sherry. There was always sherry at these occasions. Sam Vimes could regard it dispassionately since he always drank fruit juice these days. He'd heard they made sherry by letting wine go rotten. He couldn't see the point of sherry. And you will try to look dignified, won't you? said Lady Sybil, adjusting his cloak. Yes, dear. What will you try to look? Dignified, dear. And please try to be diplomatic. Yes, dear. What will you try to be? Diplomatic, dear. You're using your henpecked voice, Sam? Yes, dear. You know that's not fair? No, dear. Vimes raised a hand in a theatrical gesture of submission. All right, all right. It's just these feathers and these tights. He winced and tried to do some surreptitious rearranging in an effort to prevent himself becoming the city's first hunchgroin. I mean, supposing people see me. Of course they'll see you, Sam. You're leading the procession. And I'm very proud of you. She brushed some lint off his shoulder. Women always do this. Feathers in my hat, Vimes thought glumly, and fancy tights, and a shiny breastplate. A breastplate shouldn't be shiny. It should be too dented to take a decent polish. And diplomatic talk? How should I know how to talk diplomatically? And now I must go and have a word with Lady Solarchi, said Lady Sybil. You'll be all right, will you? You keep yawning. Of course, didn't get much sleep last night, that's all. You promise not to run away? Me? I never run. You ran away before the big soiree of the genuine ambassador. Everyone saw you. I'd just got news that the debris gang were robbing Vortin's strongroom. But you don't have to chase everyone, Sam. You employ people for that now. We got em, though, said Vimes with satisfaction. He'd enjoyed it immensely, too. It wasn't just the pursuit that was so invigorating, with his velvet cloak left behind on a tree and his hat in a puddle somewhere. It was the knowledge that while he was doing this, he wasn't eating very small sandwiches and making even smaller talk. 
It wasn't proper police work, Vimes considered, unless you were doing something that someone somewhere would much rather you weren't doing. When Sybil had disappeared into the crowd, he found a handy shadow and lurked in it. It enabled him to see almost the whole of the university's great hall. He quite liked wizards. They didn't commit crimes. Not Vimes's type of crimes, anyway. The occult wasn't Vimes's beat. The wizards might well mess up the very fabric of time and space, but they didn't lead to paperwork, and that was fine by Vimes. There were a lot of them in the hall, in all their glory, and there was nothing finer than a wizard dressed up formally, until someone could find a way of inflating a bird of paradise, possibly by using an elastic band and some kind of gas. But the wizards were getting a run for their money because the rest of the guests were either nobles or guild leaders or both, and an occasion like the Convivium brought out the peacock in everyone. His gaze went from face to chatting face, and he wondered idly what each person was guilty of. The possibility that they were not guilty of anything was one that he didn't even think worthy of consideration. Quite a few of the ambassadors were there, too. They were easy to pick out. They wore their national costumes. But since, by and large, their national costumes were what the average peasant wore, they looked slightly out of place in them. Their bodies wore feathers and silks, but their minds persistently wore suits. They chatted in small groups. One or two nodded and smiled to him as they passed. The world is watching, Vimes thought. If something went wrong and this stupid leshp business started a war, it's men like these who'd be working out exactly how to deal with the winner, whoever it was. Never mind who started it, never mind how it was fought, they'd want to know how to deal with things now. They represented what people called the international community. And like all uses of the word community, you were never quite sure what or who it was. He shrugged. It wasn't his world, thank goodness. He sidled over to Corporal Nobbs, who was standing by the main doors in the sort of lopsided slouch which was the closest a living Nobbs could come to attention. All quiet, Nobby, he said out of the corner of his mouth. Yes, sir. Nothing going on at all? No, sir. Not a pigeon anywhere, sir. What, nowhere? Nothing? No, sir. There was trouble all over the place yesterday. Yes, sir. You did tell Fred he was to send a bird if there was anything at all? Yes, sir. The shades? There's always something. Dead quiet, sir. Damn. Vimes shook his head at the sheer untrustworthiness of Ankh Morpork's criminal fraternity. I suppose you couldn't take a brick and... Th Lady Sybil was very speffic about how you was to stop here said Corporal Nobbs, staring straight ahead. Speffic? Yeah, sir. She come and have a word with me. Gave me a dollar, said Nobby. Ah, Sir Samuel, said a booming voice behind him. I don't think you've met Prince Kufura yet, have you? He turned. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully was bearing down on him, towing a couple of swarthy men. Vimes hurriedly put on his official face. This is Commander Vimes, gentlemen. Sam... No, I'm doing this the wrong way round, aren't I? Got the protocol all wrong. So much to sort out. The bursar's locked himself in the safe again. We don't know how he manages to get the key in there with him. I mean, it's not even as if it's got a keyhole on the inside. The first man held out a hand as Ridcully bustled off again. Prince Kufura, he said. My carpet got in only two hours ago. Carpet? Oh, yes, you flew. Yes, very chilly, and of course you can't get a good meal. And did you get your man, Sir Samuel? What? Pardon? I believe our ambassador told me you had to leave the reception last week. The prince was a tall man, 
who had probably once been quite athletic until the big dinners had finally weighed him down, and he had a beard. All Clatchians had beards. This Clatchian had intelligent eyes, too. Disconcertingly intelligent. You looked into them and several layers of person looked back at you. What? Oh, yes. Yes, we got them all right, said Vimes. Well done. He put up a fight, I see. Vimes looked surprised. The prince tapped his jaw thoughtfully. Vimes's hand flew up and encountered a little bit of tissue on his own chin. Ah, oh, er, uh, yes. Commander Vimes always gets his man, said the prince. Well, I wouldn't say it. Veterinarius Terrier, I've heard them call you, the prince went on. Always hot on the chase, they say, and he won't let go. Vimes stared into the calm, knowing gaze. I suppose at the end of the day we're all someone's dog, he said weakly. In fact, it is fortuitous I have met you, Commander. It is? I was just wondering about the meaning of the word shouted at me as we were on our way down here. Could you be so kind? Er, uh, if I... I believe it was... Let me see now. Oh, yes. Towelhead. The prince's eyes stayed locked on Vimes's face. Vimes was conscious of his own thoughts moving very fast, and they seemed to reach their own decision. We'll explain later, they said. You're too tired for explanations. Right now, with this man, it's oh so much better to be honest. It refers to your headdress, he said. Oh, is it some kind of obscure joke? Of course he knows, thought Vimes, and he knows I know. No, it's an insult, he said eventually. Ha! Huh. Well, we certainly cannot be held responsible for the ramblings of idiots, Commander. The prince flashed a smile. I must commend you, incidentally. I'm sorry? For your breadth of knowledge. I must have asked a dozen people that question this morning, and do you know not one of them knew what it meant? And they all seemed to have caught a cough. There was a diplomatic pause, but in it someone sniggered. Vimes let his glance drift sideways to the other man, who had not been introduced. He was shorter and skinnier than the prince, and under his black headdress he had the most crowded face Vimes had ever seen. A network of scars surrounded a nose like an eagle's beak. There was a sort of beard and moustache, but the scars had affected the hair growth so much that they stuck out in strange bunches at odd angles. The man looked as though he had been hit in the mouth by a hedgehog. He could have been any age. Some of the scars looked fresh. All in all, the man had a face that any policeman would arrest on sight. There was no possible way it could be innocent of anything. He caught Vimes's expression and grinned. And Vimes had never seen so much gold in one mouth. He'd never seen so much gold in one place. Vimes realised he was staring when he ought to have been making polite, diplomatic conversation. So, he said, are we going to have a scrap over this lesh business or what? The prince gave a dismissive shrug. <laughs> he said. A few square miles of uninhabited fertile ground with superb anchorage in an unsurpassed strategic position? <laughs> what sort of inconsequence is that for civilised people to war over? Once again, Vimes felt the gaze on him, reading him. Well, the hell with it, he said. Sorry, I'm not good at this diplomacy business. Did you mean what you said just then? There was another snigger. Vimes turned and looked at the leering, bearded face again, and was aware of a smell, no, a stench, of cloves. Good grief! 
He chews the stinking things. Ah, said the prince, you haven't met seventy-one hour Ahmed. Ahmed grinned again and bowed. Offendi, he said in a voice like a gravel path. And that seemed to be it. Not, this is seventy-one hour Ahmed cultural attaché, or seventy-one hour Ahmed my bodyguard, or even seventy-one hour Ahmed walking strong room and moth killer. It was clear that the next move was up to Vimes. That's, uh, that's an unusual name, he said. Not at all, said the prince smoothly. Ahmed is a very common name in my country. He leaned forward again. Vimes recognised this as the prelude to a confidential aside. Incidentally, was that beautiful lady I saw just now your first wife? Er, uh, all my wives, said Vimes. That is, could I offer you twenty camels for her? Vimes looked back into the dark eyes for a moment, glanced at seventy-one hour Ahmed's twenty-four carat grin and said, This is another test, isn't it? The prince straightened up, looking pleased. Well done, Sir Samuel, you're good at this. Do you know Mr. Boggis of the Thieves' Guild was prepared to accept fifteen? For Mrs. Boggis? Vimes waggled a hand dismissively. Nah, four camels, maybe four camels and a goat in a good light, and when she's had a shave. The milling guests turned at the sound of the prince's explosion of laughter. Very good, very good. I'm afraid, Commander, that some of your fellow citizens feel that just because my people invented advanced mathematics and all-day camping, we are complete barbarians who try to buy their wives at the drop of, shall we say, a turban. <laughs> I am surprised they're giving me an honorary degree, considering how incredibly backward I am. Oh, what degree is that? said Vimes. No wonder this man was a diplomat. You couldn't trust him an inch. He thought in loops, and you couldn't help liking him despite it. The prince pulled a letter out of his robe. Apparently it's a Doctorum Adamus cum Flabello Dulci. Is there something wrong, Sir Samuel? Vimes managed to turn the treacherous laugh into a coughing fit. No, <clears throat> no, <clears throat> nothing, he said, no. He desperately wanted to change the subject. Unfortunately, there was something here to provide just the opportunity. Why has Mr. Ahmed got such a big curved sword slung on his back, he said. Ah, you are a policeman. You notice such things. It's hardly a concealed weapon, is it? It's nearly bigger than him. He's practically a concealed owner. It's ceremonial, said the prince, and he does fret so if he has to leave it behind. And what exactly is his... Ah, oh, there you are, said Ridcully. I think we're just about ready. You know, you go right at the front, Sam. Yes, I know, said Vimes. I was just asking his highness what... And if you, your highness... And you, Mr... Oh, my word, what a big sword. And you come back here and take your place among the honoured guests and we'll be ready in a brace of shakes. What a thing it is to have a copper's mind, Vimes thought, as the great file of wizards and guests tried to form a dignified and orderly line behind him. Just because someone makes himself pleasant and likeable, you start to be suspicious of him, for no other reason than the fact that anyone who goes out of their way to be nice to a copper has got something on their mind. Of course, he's a diplomat, but still, I just hope he never studied ancient languages, and that's a fact. 
Someone tapped Vimes on the shoulder. He turned and looked right into the grin of 71-hour Ahmed. If you changing your mind, Offendi, I give you twenty-five camels, no problem, he said, pulling a clove from his teeth. May your loins be full of fruit. He winked. It was the most suggestive gesture Vimes had ever seen. Is this another... he began, but the man had vanished into the crowd. My loins be full of fruit, he repeated to himself. Good grief. Seventy-one-hour Ahmed reappeared at his other elbow in a gust of cloves. I go. I come back, he growled happily. The prince says the degree is doctor of sweet Fanny Adams. A wizard wheeze, yes? Oh, how we are laughing. And then he was gone. The convivium was Unseen University's big day. Originally, it had just been the degree ceremony, but over the years, it had developed into a kind of celebration of the amicable relationship between the university and the city, in particular celebrating the fact that people were hardly ever turned to clams anymore. In the absence of anything resembling a Lord Mayor's show or a state opening of Parliament, it was one of the few formal opportunities the citizens had of jeering at their social superiors, or at least at people wearing tights and ridiculous costumes. It had grown so big that it was now held in the city's opera house. Distrustful people, that is to say people like Vimes, considered that this was so there could be a procession. There was nothing like the massed ranks of wizardry walking sedately through the city in a spirit of civic amicability to subtly remind the more thoughtful kind of person that it hadn't always been this way. Look at us, the wizards seemed to be saying. We used to rule this city. Look at our big staffs with the knobs on the end. Any one of these could do some very serious damage in the wrong hands, so it's a good thing, isn't it, that they're in the right hands at the moment. Isn't it nice that we all get along so well? And someone once had decided that the commander of the watch should walk in front, for symbolic reasons. That hadn't mattered for years because there hadn't been a commander of the watch. But now there was, and he was Sam Vimes, in a red shirt, with silly baggy sleeves, red tights, some kind of puffed shorts in a style that went out of fashion by the look of it at the time when flint was at the cutting edge of cutting edge technology, a tiny shiny breastplate and a helmet with feathers in it. And he really did need some sleep. And he had to carry the truncheon. He kept his eyes fixed on the damn thing as he walked out of the university's main gate. Last night's rain had cleaned the sky. The city steamed. If he stared at the truncheon, he didn't have to see who was giggling at him. The downside was that he had to keep staring at the thing. It said, on a little tarnished shield that he'd had to clean before reading it, Protector of the King's Peace. That had brightened the occasion slightly. Feathers and antiques gold braid and fur. Perhaps it was because he was tired, or just because he was trying to shut out the world, but Vimes found himself slowing down into the traditional watchman's walk and the traditional idling thought process. It was an almost Pavlovian response, a term invented by the wizard De Nephew Boot, who had found that by a system of rewards and punishments he could train a dog at the ringing of a bell to immediately eat a strawberry meringue. De Nephew's parents, who were uncomplicated country people, had wanted a girl. They were expecting to call her Denise. The legs swung, 
The feet moved, the mind began to work in a certain way. It wasn't a dream state, exactly. It was just that the ears, nose and eyeballs wired themselves straight into the ancient, suspicious bastard node of his brain, leaving his higher brain centre free to free wheel. Fur and tights. What kind of wear was that for a watchman? Bashed in armour, greasy leather breeches and a tatty shirt with bloodstains on it. Someone else's, for preference. That was the stuff. Nice feel of the cobbles through his boots. It was really comforting. Behind him, confusion running up and down the ranks, the procession slowed down to keep in step. <laughs> Protector of the Kingi's peace, indeed. He'd said to the old man who delivered it, What peace did you have in mind? But that had fallen on stony ears. Damn silly thing, anyway, he thought. A short length of wood with a lump of silver on the end. Even a constable got a decent sword. What was he supposed to do? Wave it at people? Ye gods, it was months since he'd had a good walk through the streets. A lot of people about today. Some parade on, wasn't there? Oh dear, said Captain Carrot in the crowd. What's he doing? Next to him, an Agatean tourist was industriously pulling the lever off his iconograph. Commander Vimes stopped and, with a faraway look in his eyes, tucked his truncheon under one arm and reached up to his helmet. The tourist looked up at Carrot and tugged his shirt politely. Please, what is he doing now? he said. Uh, he's, uh, he's taking out... Oh, no, said Angua. He's taking the ceremonial packet of cigars out of his helmet, said Carrot. And he's, oh, he's lighting one. The tourist pulled the lever a few times. Very historic tradition. Memorable, murmured Angua. The crowd had fallen silent. No one wanted to break Vimes's concentration. There was the big, gusty silence of a thousand people holding their breath. What's he doing now? said Carrot. Can't you see? said Angua. Not with my hands over my eyes. Oh, the poor man. He's... he's just blown a smoke ring. First one of the day, he always does that. And now he's set off again, and now he's pulled out the truncheon and he's tossing it up in the air and catching it again. You know the way he does with his sword when he's thinking? He looks quite happy. I think he's going to really treasure this moment of happiness, said Carrot. Then the murmur started. The procession had halted behind Vimes. Some of the more impressionable people who weren't sure what they should be doing, and those who had partaken too heavily of the university's rather good sherry, started to fumble around on their person for something to throw up in the air and catch. After all, this was a traditional ceremony. If you took the view that you were not going to do things because they were apparently ridiculous, you might as well go home right now. He's tired, that's what it is, said Carrot. He's been running around overseeing things for days. Night and day watches. You know what a hands-on person he is. Let's hope the patrician will agree to let him stay that way. Oh, his lordship wouldn't... He wouldn't, would he? Laughter was starting. Vimes had started to toss the truncheon from one hand to the other. He can make his sword spin three times and still catch it. Vimes' head turned. He looked up. His truncheon clattered onto the cobbles and rolled into a puddle unheeded. Then he started to run. Carrot stared at him and then tried to see what the man had been looking at. On top of the barbican, he said, in that window. Isn't that someone up there? Excuse me, excuse me, sorry, excuse me. He began to push his way through the crowd. Vimes was already a small figure in the distance, his red cloak flying out after him. Well, there's a lot of people watching the parade from high places, said Angua. What's so special about... 
No one should be up there, said Carrot, starting to run now he was free of the crowd. It's all sealed up. Angua looked around. Every face was turned towards the street theatre, and there was a cart nearby. She sighed and strolled behind it, wearing an expression of suspicious nonchalance. There was a gasp, a faint but distinctly organic sound, a muffled yelp, and then the clank of armour hitting the ground. Vimes didn't know why he ran. It was a sixth sense. It was when the back of the brain picked up out of the ether that something bad was going to happen and didn't have time to rationalise and just took over the spinal cord. No one could get to the top of the Barbican. The Barbican had been the fortified gateway in the days when Ankh Morpork didn't regard an attacking army as a marvellous commercial opportunity. Some parts were still in use, but the bulk of it was six or seven storeys of ruin without stairs that any sensible man would trust. For years it had been used as an unofficial source of masonry for the rest of the city. Bits of it fell off on windy nights. Even gargoyles avoided it. He was aware that far behind him the noise of the crowd became a lot of shouting. One or two people screamed. He didn't turn round. Whatever was going on, Carrot could take care of it. Something overtook him. It looked like a wolf would look if one of its ancestors had been a long-haired Clatchian hunting dog, one of those graceful things that were all nose and hair. It bounded ahead and through the crumbling gateway. The creature was nowhere to be seen when Vimes arrived, but the absence was not a matter that grabbed at his attention because of the more pressing presence of the corpse, lying in a mess of fallen masonry. One of the things Vimes had always said, that is to say one of the things he said he always said, and no one disagrees with the commanding officer, was that sometimes small details, tiny little details, things that no one would notice in ordinary circumstances, grab your senses by the throat and scream, See me! There was a lingering, spicy scent in the air, and in the gap between a couple of cobblestones was a clove. It was five o'clock. Vimes and Carrot sat in the patrician's outer office, in silence except for the irregular ticking of the clock. After a while, Vimes said, Let me have a look at that again. Carrot obediently pulled out the small square of paper. Vimes looked down at it. There was no mistaking what it showed. He tucked it into his own pocket. Uh, why do you want to keep it, sir? Cape what? said Vimes. The iconograph I borrowed from the tourist. I don't know what you're talking about, said Vimes. But you... I can't see you going very far in the watch, Captain, if you go around seeing things that aren't there. Oh. The clock seemed to tick louder. You're thinking something, aren't you, sir? It is a use to which I occasionally put my brain, Captain, strange as it may seem. What are you thinking, sir? What they want me to think, said Vimes. Who's they? I don't know yet. One step at a time. A bell tinkled. Vimes stood up. You know what I always say, he said. Carrot removed his helmet and polished it with his sleeve. Yes, sir. Everyone's guilty of something, especially the ones that aren't, sir. No, not that one. Er, uh, always take into consideration the fact that you might be dead wrong, sir. No, nor that one neither. Er, uh, how come Nobby ever got a job as a watchman, sir? You say that a lot. No, I meant always act stupid, Carrot. Ah, oh, right, sir. From now on I shall remember that you always said that, sir. They put their helmets under their arms. Vimes knocked at the door. Come, said a voice. The patrician was standing at the window. Sitting or standing around the office were Lord Rust and the others. Vimes never quite understood how the civic leaders were chosen. They just seemed to turn up, like a tack on the sole of your shoe. Ah, Vimes, 
said Vetinari. Sir, let us not beat about the bush, Vimes. How did the man get up there when your people had so thoroughly checked everything last night? Magic? Couldn't say, sir. Carrot, still staring straight ahead, blinked. Your people did check the Barbican, I assume? No, sir. They didn't? No, sir. I did that myself. You physically checked it yourself, Vimes, said Boggis of the Thieves' Guild. Captain Carrot could feel Vimes's thoughts at this point. That is correct, Boggis, said Vimes, without turning his head. But we think someone got in where the windows are boarded up and pulled the boards back after him. Dust has been disturbed, and... And you didn't spot this, Vimes? Vimes sighed. It'd be hard enough to spot the nailed back boards in daylight, Boggis, let alone in the middle of the night. Not that we did, he added to himself. Angua smelled the scent on them. Lord Vetinari sat down at his desk. Hmm, the situation is grave, Vimes. Yes, sir. His Highness is very seriously injured, and Prince Cadram, we understand, is... "'beside himself with rage. "'They insist on keeping his brother in the embassy,' said Lord Rust. "'A studied insult, as if we haven't good surgeons in this city.' "'That's right, of course,' said Vimes, "'and many of them could give him a decent shave and a haircut, too.' "'Are you making fun of me, Vimes?' "'Certainly not, my lord,' said Vimes. "'In my opinion, no surgeons anywhere have cleaner sawdust on their floors "'than the ones in this city.' "'Rust glared at him. The patrician coughed. <clears throat> "'You have identified the assassin?' said the patrician. "'Carrot was expecting Vimes to say, "'Alleged assassin, sir,' but instead he said, "'Yes, he is, he was, called Ossie Brunt, sir,' No other name that we know. Lived in Market Street, did odd jobs from time to time, bit of a loner. No relatives or friends that we can find. We are making inquiries. And that's all you fellows know, said Lord Downey. It took some time to identify him, sir, said Vimes stolidly. Oh, why should that be? Couldn't give you the technical answer, sir, but it looked to me like they wouldn't need to make him a coffin. They could just have posted him between two barn doors. Was he acting alone? We only found the one body, sir, and a lot of recently fallen masonry, so it looks... I meant, does he belong to any organisation? Any suggestion that he's anticlatchian? Apart from him trying to kill one? Inquiries are continuing. Are you taking this seriously, Vimes? I have put my best men on the job, sir. Who's looking worried? Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs. Who's looking relieved? Very experienced men, the keystones of the watch. Colon and Nobbs, said the patrician. Really? Yes, sir. Their gazes met very briefly. We're getting some very threatening noises, Vimes, said Vetinari. What can I say, sir? I saw someone up on the tower. I ran. Someone shot the prince with an arrow, and then I found the man at the bottom of the tower very obviously dead with a broken bow and a lot of rock beside him. The storm last night probably loosened things up. 
I can't make up facts that don't exist, sir. Carrot watched the faces round the table. The general expression was one of relief. A lone bowman, said Vetinari, an idiot with some kind of mad grudge, who died in the execution of the uh, attempted execution. And, of course, valiant action by our watchman probably at least prevented an immediately fatal shot. Valiant action, said Downey. I knew Captain Carrot here ran towards the VIPs, and Vimes headed for the tower, but frankly, Vimes, your strange behaviour beforehand... Somewhat immaterial now, said Lord Vetinari. Once again he adopted a slightly faraway voice, as if reporting to somebody else... If Commander Vimes had not slowed down the procession, the wretch would undoubtedly have got a much better shot. As it was, the man panicked. Yes, the Prince possibly would accept that. Prince? said Vimes. But the poor devil... His brother, said the patrician. Oh, the nice one. Thank you, Commander, said the patrician. Thank you, gentlemen. Do not let me detain you. Oh, Vimes... "'Just a brief word, if you would be so good. "'Not you, Captain Carrot. "'I'm sure someone is committing some crime somewhere.' "'Vimes remained staring at the far wall while the room emptied. "'Vetinari left his chair and went over to the window. "'Strange days indeed, Commander,' he said. "'Sir, for example, I gather that this afternoon Captain Carrot "'was on the roof of the Opera House firing arrows down towards the archery butts. Very keen lad, sir. It could well be that the distance between the opera house and the targets is about the same, you know, as the distance between the top of the barbican and the spot where the prince was hit. Just fancy that, sir. Vetinari sighed. And why was he doing this? It's a funny thing, sir, but he was telling me just the other day that, in fact, it is still law that every citizen should do one hour's archery practice every day. Apparently, the law was made in 1356, and it's never been... Do you know why I sent Captain Carrot away just now, Vimes? Couldn't say, sir. Captain Carrot is an honest young man, Vimes. Yes, sir. And did you know that he winces when he hears you tell a direct lie? Really, sir? Damn. I can't stand to see his poor face twitch all the time, Vimes. Very thoughtful of you, sir. Where was the second bowman, Vimes? Damn. Second bowman, sir? Have you ever had a hankering to go on the stage, Vimes? Yes, at the moment I'd leap on it wherever it's heading, thought Vimes. No, sir. Pity! I am certain you're a great loss to the acting profession. I believe you said that the man had put the boards back after him. Yes, sir. Nailed them back. Blast. Yes, sir. From the outside. Damn. Yes, sir. A particularly resourceful lone bowman, then. Vimes didn't bother to comment. Vetinari sat down at his desk, raised his steepled fingers to his lips, and stared at Vimes over the top of them. Hmm. Colon and Nobs are investigating this. Really? Yes, sir. If I were to ask you why, 
you'd pretend not to understand? Vimes let his forehead wrinkle in honest perplexity. Sir? If you say, sir, again in that stupid voice, Vimes, I swear there will be trouble. They're good men, sir. However, some people might consider them to be unimaginative, stolid, and, mm, how can I put this, possessed of an inbuilt disposition to accept the first explanation that presents itself and then bunk off somewhere for a quiet smoke? A certain lack of imagination? An ability to get out of their depth on a wet pavement? A tendency to rush to judgment? I hope you're not impugning my men, sir. Vimes, Sergeant Coolan and Corporal Nobbs have never been puned in their entire lives, sir. And yet, in fact, we do not need complications, Vimes. An ingenious lone madman. Well, there are many madmen. A regrettable incident. Yes, sir. The man was looking harassed, and Vimes felt there was room for a pinch of sympathy. Fred and Nobby don't like complications either, sir. We need simple answers, Vimes. Sir, Fred and Nobby are good at simple. The patrician turned away and looked out over the city. Ah, he said in a quieter voice, simple men to see the simple truth. This is a fact, sir. You are learning fast, Vimes. Couldn't say about that, sir. And when they have found the simple truth, Vimes? Can't argue with the truth, sir. In my experience, Vimes, you can argue with anything.